Next, this month's special series focus on disaster medicine and preparedness. Unforeseen disasters carry unique challenges and learning opportunities. This month, we present conversations that scrutinize our plans and protocols and ask, how prepared are we? How will we react? Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 Central Time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reported observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. Welcome to a special program, Focus on Disaster Medicine and Public Health Preparedness. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. James James. Dr. James is the director of the American Medical Association Center for Public Health Preparedness and Disaster Response and editor-in-chief of the journal, Disaster Medicine and Public Health Preparedness. Upon retirement from the military, Brigadier General James received the Distinguished Service Medal. He is chair of the National Disaster Life Support Foundation Board of Directors and serves on several Institute of Medicine forums. Today we are discussing disaster life support training. Greetings, Dr. James. I appreciate you taking the time to join us for this discussion of this unique program. I'm just so happy to be here. I think it's an exciting area that we're addressing, and we're really trying to get the message out to the whole physician population. may not be a Martian invasion like in H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, but it seems like we're continuing to face an onslaught of both natural and man-made disasters. How did this program for disaster life support training come into being. It's kind of fascinating. And it actually predates 9-11. Obviously, disasters have been with us from the beginning of time and unfortunately will continue to the end of it. But medicine itself, as it evolved into its specialties and subspecialties, an area that I call disaster medicine became fragmented. And emergency medicine had a piece of it, preventive medicine a piece, public health a piece, et cetera, et cetera. And there was no unified body of knowledge, if you will. Back about a, a year before 9-11, there were a couple of groups, one out of the Medical College of Georgia, one out of Texas Southwestern, that got together and attempted to put together a program that was all hazards-based that basically took medical practitioners, and not just physicians, healthcare professionals, EMTs, paramedics, etc., and tried to give them a body of knowledge that was specific to preparing for and responding to a disaster. The name they came up with was Disaster Life Support. And about a year after 9-11 is when I came to the AMA, and I knew some of these individuals who had begun this work, and we came together and had a series of discussions, and to make a long story short, we incorporated their work in a partnership with the AMA. And for the past five to six years, we've been developing, evolving a suite of courses and advanced a basic and a core disaster life support, which we to date have given to well over 50,000 practitioners across the spectrum of disciplines in healthcare. Can you tell us a little bit about the curriculum? What would I learn and how many hours would I spend in the basic course? The basic course, as it's currently configured, is eight hours, and it is didactic in format. We're very busy trying to get an electronic web-based version, and we're hoping that'll be ready shortly. But what we try to do is to change the mindset 
of individuals so that their focus goes from individual patient care to group or population medical care. And what do you have to do not just to take care of that single patient that all physicians have been trained to do and are very comfortable with, but what do you do when you have to take care of a group of patients? And just as importantly, what you have to do when you have to take care of a population of non-patients in terms of basic public health requirements, et cetera. We focus on the most common scenarios, whether it's a hurricane, trauma from bombing, radiological dirty bombs, specific infectious agents, specific nerve agents, and other toxins, and what the medical response to that should be. But to me, the most important lessons are when something big happens, I'm not an individual physician taking care of an individual patient. I'm part of a medical public health integrated response system in which I have an important but not the only role. I'd like to welcome those who are just joining us for a special program on disaster medicine. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and with me today is Dr. James James, Editor-in-Chief of the journal Disaster Medicine and Public Health Preparedness. We're discussing disaster life support training. So this is really a different paradigm of thinking for a physician. And that's the bottom line. It is a different paradigm of thinking, and it cuts across all physicians. I'm a very strong believer that every physician has a secondary specialty, and that specialty is public health. That doesn't mean that they're out there practicing public health day to day, but all physicians practice it, whether it's 1% or 5% or 50%. And when there is an emergency, I I really think we all have an obligation to take care of ourselves first, our family second, and then our communities. And that's the kind of mindset that we're trying to involve. And it does involve population, and it does involve a paradigm shift, if you will. Is there a mechanism by which, you mentioned 50,000 professionals have taken this course, is there a mechanism by which they can be mobilized? Do you have registries? I wish we did. And it's not that we don't have anything. When you're in the area of volunteerism, it's very fragmented. You've got, I mean, great organizations out there like the American Red Cross, which doesn't really handle physicians. But the thing becomes what you don't want is the spontaneous volunteer. You don't want a physician that simply raises his hand or shows up at the border, which happened in Katrina in many, many instances, where the person individual doesn't have an assigned task, an assigned role. He's not part of a response plan. And he basically becomes someone who needs to consume resources because he needs to be fed and needs a place to sleep, et cetera, et cetera. So we're extremely concerned about how do you match up what I call the ready, willing, and able people that have had some specialized training that have raised their hand beforehand and said, yes, I want to be part of this. And then how, your question, do we mobilize them, identify them and mobilize them when we need them? At the AMA, we're in the early process of establishing a database 
which will list physicians who, again, raise their hand, who've reached a certain certification level, whether it's our courses or somebody else's courses, and we'll be able to identify them by specialty, by geographical location, and their actual physical ability to respond, and then be able to serve as the interface with an agency such as a public health agency, a governmental agency, HHS, that identifies a need after the initial assessment for a given complement of physicians, nurses, et cetera. So the role of the graduate of the program, and I understand you actually can get a certification. It's not a certification, and that's just a difficult word that gets into medical liability. You're certified that someone can do this, and then something happens. And So what we do is we give them a certificate of completion. So if they complete the B course, they get a certificate in the B course. The A course, which is the didactic course, it's for everyone. We wish all physicians and nurses, et cetera, had that basic information. The advanced course is for those that feel they might really have to respond or might be interested in responding. And it's hands-on. It covers exercises, triage, mass casualty situations. You get to experience life in protective gear, which is very different as those who've done it and practiced in it can tell you. And it's, again, it's to familiarize actual responders with what a scene would be like and what they would be called upon to potentially do at a scene. Have the instructors for the courses actually been on the job in real-life disasters? Oh, definitely. Two of our instructors are down there now at the Texas-Louisiana border, very involved in that. We were very involved in Katrina. We didn't send teams overseas, but many of our trainees were involved in the Pakistani earthquake and the tsunami response. We try very hard to match up. You know, there's a certain academic requirement, but it's the practice that's really essential in this. Speaking of the practice, fortunately and hopefully there will not be too many opportunities for one to use their training. How do you stay fresh? How do you, like anything else, you know, you have to use it regularly to be good at it. We're wrestling with that every day. And I personally am evolving to the point where I think it'd be great, especially for physicians. They take the B level, they take the A level, they get a certificate of completion, which is good for two or three years, probably three years. And then there's this recycling thing that you're getting at. And we're starting to evolve into a concept of exercises such that we'll go out and we'll do a four-hour interactive course or exercise, if you will, on pandemic influenza, or we might do it on SARS, or we might do it on response to a dirty bomb or some other scenario, and make scenario-specific, those kinds of interactive things be the recertification equivalent. But we're not 100% there yet. We don't have full agreement on it. I think we also need some review of the basics, you know, to accompany that And that's a work in progress. And we have a large disaster education consortium that's run by the AMA, where we take people from all of the different disciplines, academia, et cetera, and incorporate their knowledge and experience not only into our courses, but into addressing questions like you just mentioned. 
Where would those in our audience go for more information? And do you get CME for taking the course? You do get CME for taking the course. That's on a course-by-course basis because of the CME rules. But we can do, it's up to, I think, seven hours for the BDLS and about 15 hours for the ADLS, which is a two-day thing. You can go into the website, National Disaster Life Support, or you can go into the AMA website and find that information. We also have just completed the first year of our journal, Disaster Medicine and Public Health Preparedness, and we have the information in there on how to access the various websites that will lead people to get the information on the courses and the overall program. I'd like to thank Dr. James James, who's been my guest on this special segment, Focus on Disaster Medicine and Public Health Preparedness. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and we've been discussing disaster life support training. I invite you to listen to our on-demand program library by visiting us at reachmd.com. If you have comments or suggestions, call us at 888-MD-XM-157. Thanks for listening. I leave you with the words of H.G. Wells. We have learned now that we cannot regard this planet as being fenced in and a secure abiding place for man. We can never anticipate the unseen good or evil that may come upon us suddenly. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I wish you good day and good health.